Thank you so much, Grant. Thank you so much, worship team. That was wonderful. Um, and now you guys are left with me. Uh, how's everyone doing out there today? It's good. It's good to see you all here. Um, we're going to have a great time together as we look at um, God's Word as the body of Christ, right? My name is Jordan Johnson. I am the student ministries director, so my normally you'll see me with our students and doing different activities and stuff. In fact, yesterday we just got back in town from our senior trip where we take our seniors uh, specifically and, and go somewhere to have fun, to spend time with them um, as we get ready to send them off to the next stage of life. Uh, and so that was a blessing for me and my wife to be there for them. Um, and it just goes to show you that the time just keeps on going um, so with that being said, though, we are going to be finishing our series today on the Lord's Prayer. And so what we have set out, both CJ and Slade and I as your teaching team for this series, what we have set out is this idea of what does it look like if we pull the Lord's Prayer apart and look at it line by line to see if we can get a deeper meaning, a deeper understanding for how it applies to our life. And so that was our goal. And so we're going to be finishing that up today. Uh, and so... Um, I am excited about that because what we're going to be looking at today, I think, is definitely needed for the time and place that we find ourselves um, in today. So with that said, uh, we are, it's been our tradition during this series that we rise as the body of faith, as the body of Christ, and we read the uh, Lord's Prayer together in unison. So please rise with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You guys can be seated. So what we are looking at today is what is often traditionally considered the sixth and seventh petition within the Lord's Prayer, which is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be trying to wrap our minds around what this actually means. Because if I am being perfectly honest with you guys, in all transparency, this has always been the most confusing aspect of the Lord's Prayer um, that in my own experience. And so you look, everything else seems to pre, you can get the idea at the face value. Okay, give our daily bread. Okay, forgive us. Yes, of course, and all that, all that. But then we get to the part where it says, but don't lead us into temptation, but then deliver us from evil. And you have to stop like, wait a minute. Okay, okay. Do not lead us into temptation. Check. Okay, okay. But deliver us from evil. Don't take us to a bad place, but then pull us out of the bad place. God, is, is it just, is, am I alone in this? I, I mean, you know, this is, for I think a lot of us, this, this phrasing tends to throw us off. Even though we know it is good, we know it is true, and we, and we pray it in faith, but often, many times, we look at it and say, what? So uh, with that being said, I am going to do as best as I can to remove the what with this petition of the prayer because as part of my study, there's some really exciting things I want to show you guys and what God has been teaching me um, through this. Because really, with this idea is about wrestling with this word temptation. Now, we do have this word from evil up here, but let's go ahead and address this real quick at the beginning. I'm not going to spend very much time with the word evil, okay, because we all kind of have a general understanding of what evil is. And oftentimes, there is debate about what type of evil it's referring to in the Lord's Prayer, but whether it is 
an abstract cosmic evil, whether it is personified evil in Satan, whether it is a systematic evil, or, or whether it is the powers and principalities, whatever shape the evil is in does not change the meaning of the Lord's prayer. And so to make efficient use of our time here today, you guys can argue about that later, just not now. Okay, because oftentimes, let us be honest, the only people arguing about this are Christians arguing with other Christians, okay? And there's enough things for us to argue, argue about today. So let's continue on. So we're going to be focusing on this word temptation. And so when you look in your study Bible or begin any sort of Google search, what you will very quickly come across is that the word temptation in Greek is synonymous with the word for testing and or trial. In fact, some of you in your translations, you will see it does say deliver us from trials or lead us not into trials. And so we're going to be working with that. Okay. And so our goal today is we're going to try to understand the tension between God and temptation, because it is a fact of reality that we have to deal with in that God and testing go together. Uh, even when, when we look at how, once again, if we look at how the Bible is structured, we have to account for testing, okay? The largest portion, the largest uh, literary genre in the Bible is biblical narrative, okay? Which you have one person going from point A to point B, but going through a conflict in the middle of it. You cannot have conflict and have a story. And so we know just by the way the Bible is structured that conflict, temptation, trial, and testing, it is written into the scripture. And for, for us, what we must do is try to understand this tension because testing is all over the Bible. It's not even, does God test in the scriptures? Yes, absolutely. Are you kidding me? Not only did Jesus be led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, but you have other explicit examples, such as Abraham in Genesis 22, being tested by God in regards to the sacrifice of Isaac. Or even one of my personal favorites, the beginning of the book of Job, where not only does God test Job, but he delivers him to evil. And so even when you look at it, there's even some commentators that even kind of humorously uh, have this passing comment is perhaps the Lord's prayer was given to us as a way of saying, God, please don't treat us like Job. Please don't treat us the way you treated Job. Please don't. And so we have to deal with this. We can't ignore it. We can't get past it. And so for us, I want to bravely walk in to look at what testing is. How can we understand the tension between a sovereign God and the temptations and trials that we experience as part of our lot of life? Um, and so, and then after that, we're going to spend time doing that. But then after that, what I want to do is I want to bring the entire prayer back together so that we finish this series looking at it as a whole and kind of taking what we've learned through this series and applying it to our lives. So for that to begin, though, let's get a very good working definition of test. Okay, so, of course, go to the source of all wisdom and knowledge. Google, and you get to Merriam-Webster's online dictionary, and then you type in text, the very top first definition you're going to get is a series of questions or exercises for measuring the skills, knowledge, intelligence, capacities, or attitudes of an individual or group. And you look at that and you say, yeah, that, that's a good definition of test. That is thorough. We understand what's going on. And in fact, all of us have experience with this, okay? Whether it is your high school exams, SATs, ACTs, bar exams, pilot's license, almost everything that we do that requires you to have a license for usually involves a type of test like this. Here's the body of information, and we're going to test you about how much you retained that information. 
Now, fortunately, to the best of my knowledge, when we go before the pearly gates, when we meet St. Peter up in heaven, we are not going to be given a scantron and a number two pencil. Uh, so I'm very happy about that. But honestly, though, this definition of text, of test, does not really fit the Lord's Prayer in terms of what we are talking about. Jesus was not saying, okay, memorize this, okay, when you die, you're going to be tested, okay, and so that's just not in there. So what I did, though, is out of frustration, you know what you do when, when, you, when you're frustrated on the internet? You just start scrolling, just see what happens, okay? So out of frustration with this definition, I just started scrolling, because on Merriam-Webster's, you can look and see for yourself, there is quite a lot of definitions for test, okay? So as I was scrolling down, I came across this other definition for test, and I looked at it, and I said, oh, I think that's the one. I think that's what we're looking for. I look at it, it's like that. That makes sense. Do you guys want to see it? Okay, good. You guys have never been so excited for definitions before, I tell you. Okay, here we go. This is it. The procedure of submitting a subject to such conditions or operations that will lead to its proof or disproof, to its acceptance or rejection. When I came across this definition of test, in my mind, I said, that's, that's where it is. That's the uncomfortable tension that arises in the pit of our stomach when we think about God testing. If we have this in our mind, God, please don't test me, because I'm afraid if you test me, you'll reject me. This idea of putting someone to the test to find out if they are worthy or not. Because when you put it in this type of language, and then you also apply it to our faith here on earth, then the stakes get raised really high. Because you're either true or you're false. You're either accepted or rejected. You're either eternally saved or eternally damned based upon the results of the test. I think about this, and in my head I go, Mm -mm. nope, please do not test me. No, no, we're not going down that road. We're not going down that road. Please not. And so it kind of makes sense, okay? And, and, but yet we see throughout Scripture, God tests regularly, purposefully, and intentionally. And so this is the tension that we're trying to navigate today. If our idea of test looks like this, then what we need to do is we need to readjust our perspective to a more biblical perspective or something that kind of comes out. And once again, we don't want to take what we already know and bring it into the scripture. Rather, we want scripture to come out and change us. And so that's what we're going to do today. So to get this, to help wrap our minds around it, it is important to understand where the people who were hearing the Lord's Prayer were coming from. The first audience of the Lord's Prayer were Jews. And I, believe, I fervently believe that Jesus knew what he was doing when he gave us the Lord's Prayer. And when he was talking to these people, he had in his mind that which they were all familiar with and they were well acquainted with as part of their cultural history, and that is the Exodus story, and more specifically, their time in the wilderness. And so what I want to submit to you guys today is that the Lord's Prayer, its foundations, and the best way that we can wrap our minds to understand what's actually going on is to look back at what happened before to see what they are picking out and pulling and so that we can better understand where we're at today. And so in order for us to do that, we're actually going to go to the book of Deuteronomy. 
Okay, so if you guys have that, go ahead and go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm going to put it um, up on the screen, but because there's a lot of text, it might be a little bit small, so it's important for you guys to be aware of that. Uh, hang on, hydration break. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Slade and I talk about that often. There is no graceful way to take a hydration break during the series. You just got to do it. You got to do it. Okay, so when we are looking in the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to look in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And so what we need to understand before we get into this verse is that Deuteronomy uh, is, is, is a book written to the next generation of Israelites that are going to be coming out of the wilderness, okay? Uh, and honestly, what Moses is doing is he's going over the entire law again. In fact, the word Deuteronomy means second law, okay? So we have the original generation that came out of Egypt and went into the wilderness, and they are all now dead, Okay, so what is left is the next generation who was born in the wilderness who are then going to go with Joshua into the promised land. But what's interesting to note is that Moses talks to them as if they are that original generation, kind of once again playing on that cultural heritage. This is our story. This is our story of where we come from. But uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, what I would like to point out to you guys is that you actually get a very good understanding of the rhyme and reason why God uses testing, and then that gives us a place to move forward to. And the way, and once again, and this is everything from manna being dropped daily to the time of the wilderness and being delivered from the wilderness, it all matches up to what Jesus is referencing to when he gets into the Lord's Prayer. So this is why we're going to go there. Okay, so in Deuteronomy chapter 8, at the very, yeah, verse 1, we're just going to go 1 through 3. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to you, to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you there these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So many of you guys may be thinking this this sounds awfully familiar, and, and yes, there's a good reason for it. This is the very verse that Jesus quoted to Satan during Jesus' own time of testing while he was in the wilderness. Okay, so once again, there's a very measured history of Jesus using this verse in particular to make his point. But there's two things in here. Once again, there's a lot of text up there, and it's important to understand that, but I want to draw your focus into a couple things as he reveals, first of all, the main goal of the test, or why he tests, and that's kind of highlighted right here, testing you to know what was in your heart. So the main reason that we are given why God is using these tests is to get at what is normally hidden from view, to bring what is hidden up to the surface. God uses tests like that. But then, not just that. And it's not just enough. Once again, God's not doing this for his own enjoyment. Once again, we are well familiar with the idea of God knowing everything. So the idea of him using tests to find out something that he already knows is kind of like, Really, God, you're doing that? But there's actually a secondary reason that is far more than just God keeping tabs on us, but it, he finds out a little bit later that what I want to bring your focus to is that he might make you know. There is this sense of ignorance 
okay, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, but then it's also making a motion that he's going to reveal, and so that there is no more ignorance, okay, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. So there is, there is a kind of a relational aspect to this testing. It is not merely the instructor talking down to the student, testing to see what they know, but more or less there is a relational aspect to the tests, that end up also being for our benefit. So if I had to sum this up, this is a phrase that I would use to sum it up, and it's going to be kind of guiding us the rest of the time as we look at this. But um, in summary, God uses trials, tests, and temptations that we experience to reveal to us what he already knows. Okay? Which, if you guys were here last week, that brings us exactly to where we left off when we talked about this notion of it is a gift from God to be aware of your sin. One of the things we talked about is that the, the human brain, although wonderful, wonderful, mysterious, creative, and perfectly designed by God to fulfill its function, also exists within a fallen world. And so your brain has, a number, has only one job, keep you alive, and keep you safe, okay? And we've talked about even in this fallen world, sometimes your brain will think you will die from embarrassment, okay? So very often your brain will hide things even from yourself. And so what we're seeing is that God is using tests. He's using temptations. He's using trials to bring what is hidden, even from you, to the surface. Because you see, what we're going to be looking at is how God is guiding us through this. Okay, and here's the idea. If you have no idea what's up with your sin, you have no direction of where to go. You're just walking around in ignorance, sometimes happily, sometimes unhappily, okay? Let's be honest, some ignorance sometimes feels like a nice vacation. <laughs> but we have this idea, though, that God is actively revealing what he already knows for our betterment. Because here's the deal. If God brings to your attention your sin, how you have impacted people in your world, then that's a point of orientation. You now have a direction. You can either make a move to change, to grow, to flourish, or you can make a move to ignore, to bury, and to forget. But you won't know which direction to go until it's up to the surface. One of the things we're going to talk about is that when the waters are calm, it's easy to keep things under control, is it not? But alas, when the waters are troubled, and we are experiencing storms in life, then the ability to keep control over certain things quickly will come out of your hands. And so we need to understand, not necessarily God finding out if he can accept us or reject us, but rather, what is God trying to reveal about myself as I go through these temptations? What is he trying to tell me? And oftentimes we get so fixated on the source because, yes, we serve a sovereign God. And, yes, testing, testing exists in the world. So oftentimes we find ourselves getting confused and argued about, well, who's ultimately responsible? Is he doing this? Is he allowing it? And once again, the, even the early church fathers were having arguments about us. So I am under no impressions that I'm going to solve this problem for us here today. This is something that we are going to wrestle with to eternity. Okay? But... Rather than focusing on the source and the cause, my eyes, I would submit to you to also look back at the end result. Because yes, we receive trials. Yes, we receive temptations. Yes, we receive uh, <laughs> life. Let's just call it life for shorthand, okay? Can we not? Okay, but, but look at this idea, though. 
It's not just a source, but he redeems the trials given to us by the world, the flesh, and Satan. So it's not just enough to look for the source, but also look for the repair, because we serve a God who is a God of repair, a God of reconciliation, a God of redemption. And no matter what, whatever test, trial, temptations you are experiencing right now, wherever the source, wherever the cause, that does not matter so much as that the person who is going to be there to end it and end it under his terms. And may we take comfort in that. And so when I look at this phrase, and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil, what is brought to my imagination is the idea of being in the wilderness. You cannot go through the wilderness and not be changed when you come out on the other side. You cannot go through temptations, trials, and testing and walk out and say, that was fun. Okay, you cannot go in there and not be changed. And so when I look at this and, and how it's related to the Lord's Prayer, what, what comes to my mind most unmistakably over and over and over again is that humanity has an undeniable need to be led. That is a fundamental function of humanity is that we will always, no matter what stage of life, no matter what level of the game we achieve, we will always need to follow someone else. And when you look at a time spent in the wilderness, and if you have a guide, then you have a chance of surviving. And if you have a guide in the wilderness, that guide, whoever it is, has the ultimate power to either deliver you to safety or to deliver you to absolute destruction. So when you find yourself in the wilderness, look for whatever guide it is that you're having to get you out of the wilderness. And honestly, that's, that, in, my, in my study, that's, that I've, that's what I've seen so much, so much often. And, often and, and this may not bring absolute clarity to the idea of um, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. But I have a little shorthand way if you want to do the, the, the fast one, if you're trying to understand what's going on and, and where we are and where we stand in terms of God, just reverse the phrase. Okay, lead us not to temptation, but to deliver us to evil. Then say out loud, and like you mean it, the opposite. God, give me the tests. I can take it. You're laughing already. But, you know, but once again, you got to do your power pose. And I dare you to stand in the mirror and say, God, give me all that you got. I will pass the test. And then just, just you know, like maybe like flinch a little bit. But once again, when you say it out loud, all of a sudden it starts to sound silly. But that's only when you say it out loud. When you say it inside your heart, then perhaps it doesn't sound as silly. Maybe it even sounds a little bit possible. But alas, what we need to understand is that through this journey in life, we will be tested, there will be temptations, there will be trials. But what we need to understand is that we have a guide who is going to guide us through the wilderness and out of the wilderness into the promised land. And so with that said, I want to move now uh, to where we're going to talk about um, the bringing the entire prayer back together. So taking what we've learned from Slade and from CJ and myself and what we've looked at in the line-by-line -line approach to the Lord's Prayer, let's bring it all back together so that we can see perhaps something that we may not have seen before, but that was right there before us all our lives. So bringing the prayer back together. Okay, And so to, in order to bring the prayer back together, first, we have to have a talk about poetry. Okay, P 
Poetry, when it shows up in the Bible, is one of the, is the second most common uh, genre of literature that shows up in the Bible. You have biblical narrative being the large sum of it, okay? And then you also have the poetry, which is the second largest genre of literature. So this includes the book of Psalms. This includes the book of Lamentations. This includes the book of Job. This includes the book of Song of Solomons. But also you would sit, no, not Sol- Solomon, not Solomons. There's only one of them. Um, but then this also addresses times when, during the biblical narrative, sometimes they would break into a song and dance, okay? So it would be included into that. And in fact, most of the modern translations actually reflect this. If you guys look at your Bibles, you will see that when there is dialogue and there's a story, you kind of have the paragraph thing going on. But whenever the Bible switches to poetry, then it, it messes with the font, not the font, but the column, and you kind of see that kind of staggered line and stuff like that. That's called a stanza. And so what is important to know is that a paragraph is to writing or narrative what a stanza is to poetry. So stanza is a poetic paragraph. Okay, and so it's all throughout Scripture, and so it's worth our time to kind of wrestle with it because, once again, when you determine what genre the Bible is in, that determines what rules you use to interpret And so if we are a a church that values the correct and good and responsible translation and interpretation of the scriptures, then it's important for us to know the genre. So that's the reason why we kind of do this right here. Okay, so biblical poetry, the very fast definition is that it expresses truth, feelings, and imagery with as few words as possible. So the general rule with poetry is they want to go for maximum impact, with a minimum amount of words. You guys tracking with that? And so you will see this, um, honestly, because you'll see like the very grandiose words of David in the Psalms, and then you can just sit there and chew on them and meditate them and just get all these types of meaning and metaphors and imagery that gets conjured up in the mind. It's important to know they did that on purpose. So it is an exercise in imagination. It also is an exercise of patience when we approach biblical poetry and so the reason why we do this is because when you look at the Lord's Prayer, what I want you guys to see is that it actually has a poetic structure. And so that when you are reciting the Lord's Prayer, when you're praying it together with your small group, or like we just did here before now, not only are you praying unto God, but you're reciting poetry. Congratulations. You guys didn't even know you were doing it, but you're doing it. So there's a couple elements that I want to point out that kind of make my case uh, for that. And so there's a number of elements uh, that are involved with poetry that kind of leads us to this conclusion, because it's not just my opinion. There's other scholars that kind of second and third this uh, as well. But there's a couple um, structures I want to point out. First one, in the top, it's repeated. When Jesus, and Jesus incorporates the Jewish culture of praying three times a day, when he says up higher up in the passage, when he says, when you pray pray like this. And the audience he was talking to was Jewish. And during this time, and especially after the return from Babylon, at the return from exile, the Jews placed a high priority on written prayer. So most often, they were praying the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But they also, at the time, they had a variety of other written prayers that they would pray and recite during their times of prayer, which is sun up, midday, and sundown. And so what we believe and what we infer from the culture is that Jesus was signaling to the Jews that when you pray, when you know your well-known prayer culture, put this in there. Whether it was replace all the prayers with this or add this to the other prayers is not quite known, but we do know he intended it to be prayed repeatedly. 
Uh, the second one is a structured. It does have a structured approach. And so when you look at the Lord's Prayer, it has an opening address, the Our Father in Heaven. Okay, and then you have a seven-line symmetry. You have line one, and then line two, and then you have line three with the clause, and then you have the central line, which is give us this day our daily bread, and then after that you have line five with the clause, and then line six, and then line seven. Some of you guys are seeing it now for the first time. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, I know. It's okay. Yeah, it's cool. It's good to be excited about Scripture. So when we're looking at this, and so once again, I want to point out to you guys, this was all done very intentional and very on purpose. Okay, not only was it God-inspired and God-breathed, but it's also intentional and on purpose. And then finally, the third element one would bring uh, attention to is it is memorable, short and compact, intended to be learned and recited. So once again, in our modern culture, one of the most common debates about the Lord's Prayer is, are we supposed to recite it exactly every time, or are we supposed to use it as a template for our own freestyle prayers? And because it's biblical poetry, I am pleased to tell you it is more of a both and instead of an either or. Because it is poetry, yes, you are supposed to learn it and recite it, but because of the way poetry is structured, it is like a little gift box. And in this tiny little gift box, you can keep pulling out more and more gifts. And you just keep digging, and you will learn more and more, and it just gets so awesome that you just cannot stop. And everyone's going, praise the Lord for biblical poetry, because this is the most fun I've ever had with learning the Bible in my life. Maybe. That's, it's just, it's just, I'm just saying, it's an option. It's an option. This was fun for me. I don't know about you guys. In fact, you want to make it more fun? Um, <laughs> I debated whether to do this or not because some, it seems needless, but at the same time, it's like, man, that is really cool. And oftentimes, it's good to be joyful about Scripture, is it not? So you guys with me? You guys want to see this next really cool thing I want to show you guys? Okay. <laughs> so once again, because we are in a modern culture, the English language does not play well with the Hebrew or Greek. And so when it comes to Bible translation, there's always this, this struggle to try to get the, the most accurate meaning from a foreign language. And so what I love most is there's a thing called an interlinear Bible. Okay, and if you guys haven't heard about this, you can look at BibleHub.com, which is an amazing online Bible software, but they actually have an interlinear Bible, both in the Hebrew and Greek. It's free to use. Um, check it out. It is wild. Because an interlinear Bible... What it does is it has the Greek word above, and then right below it, it has the English word. Okay, so the interlinear Bible will have the scripture written out in Greek. Okay, and so it will have Greek word and then English word all the way down. Now, the funny thing about an interlinear Bible is that it does not adjust the English language for sentence structure or for grammar. It is merely going Greek word, he, uh, English word, Greek word, English word, or Hebrew if you're in the Old Testament, okay? And so what you get are these really wild, weird English sentences that really don't make sense. But it is like, a, it's called transliteration. And so would you guys like to see what the Lord's Prayer looks like transliterated from Greek into English? Okay, good. Good, because we're doing it anyways. You don't have a choice. Um, <laughs> So real quick, you'll see some words that are hyphenated, and that is a signal that means that in the Greek language, those two words would have been one word, okay? But once again, we are looking at the Greek phrasing of the Lord's Prayer written into English without making adjustments for sentence structure and for grammar. And I want you guys to see something. Perhaps the poetry that is intended in there may shine out a little more clearly, even though it'll be the most bizarre thing you have read today. Father, 
ours, the one, excuse me, Father, ours, the one in the heavens, hallowed be the name of you. Come the kingdom of you, done the will of you, as in heaven, even on earth. The bread, ours, the coming day, give to us today, and forgive to us the debts of us, as even we forgive the debtors of us. And not bring us to temptation, but deliver us from the evil. Isn't that interesting? Some of you guys are like, man, this is, this is reminding me of Shakespeare back in English Lit 1. I am not prepared for this. And that's okay. And honestly, what, what I want to point out to you, the first thing we need to take away from this is if you ever have a chance to meet a Bible translator, before you tell them your favorite translation or the problems you have with the other translations, don't do anything else before you say, thank you for the work you have invested for making this readable for me. It cannot be mistaken, the absolute wonderful work that God is using Bible translators to do today. So before your opinions come out, don't do anything else before you say, thank you, okay? Because this is wackadoo, and we can be honest about that, okay? But there's one thing I want to show you guys. When you look at this kind of symmetry, when you start to read about it, perhaps the pattern will start to show up. And many people have commented on this before. Once again, I'm not showing you anything brand new or novel, but there is a sense that in the top half of you, of you, of you, of you. And then you have the middle and the bottom half of us, of us, of us, of us. You get this you and us. In fact, when you lay it, when you lay it out for you to see, you see that the emphasis is being brought on his name. The emphasis is being brought on his kingdom and the emphasis is being brought to his will. And then when you get to the bottom half, the emphasis is brought to our debts our temptations and trials, and our need for deliverance. And that one central line is the only line where both parties come together and are referenced. And he's talking about his provision for our needs. So what I want you guys to understand here today, that whenever you are praying the Lord's Prayer, what you are doing is you are reciting a very small and compact version of the gospel. That every time you pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are bringing attention to what he is, who he is, and not just who he is, but what he is doing and how he is moving in our lives. And when you get down to the bottom, you get, you get a stark contrast to who we are and where we are and our hopelessly stuckness, okay? And then right there in the middle, he comes down and meets that because he is a God who has deemed us worthy of saving, and there would be nothing that's going to stop him from that. And so every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, may you think in your mind, goodness gracious Lord, thank you so much for saving my life. Every time this prayer is prayed, you are reciting the gospel, not for the masses, but for your heart. In an effort that when God is using the temptations and trials to bring up to you what he wants you to pay attention to, may you never forget the gospel. And that whatever comes up, know that you are not rejected, but you are seen as accepted. You are seen as pure. You are seen as saints. You are seen as brothers and sisters, inheritance of the kingdom. And that must never be lost, especially when it comes to looking at our own sin. Amen? So a couple of guidelines then. When we look at this poetic structure of the gospel, okay, poetry is fun because, honestly, the rules just go right out the window, okay? And so, so a couple little guidelines I want to give to you guys because I would encourage you, go just dive head first into poetry and have fun. Okay? Have fun with Scripture, okay? But a couple little guidelines I want to give you, and they're actually not really guidelines. They're kind of more like anti-rules, if you will, uh, because many times, once again, we're very, uh, our culture, American culture is very logical, straightforward, measured, and stuff like that, and oftentimes, we don't mix well 
with poetry. I know some of you guys out there are like, I love poetry. That's good. The majority of America doesn't because, because of these rules going out the window. And so this is what I would advise you when you go into uh, poetry, and especially specifically to a poetic reading of the Lord's Prayer, is resist the reflex to measure. Data, analysis, measurements, empirical evidence, those are more products of the modern world than they are products of Scripture. And so I would want to encourage you, as a person, in the experience of my own life, having a consistent, structured prayer time has been one of the things that has been most elusive for me to grasp hold of. And so I want to encourage you not to make excuses, but to resist the reflex to measure. So if you walk away and say, I'm going to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day, seven days a week for the next 20, 30, 40 years without fail, it's awesome. But when those days happen, when you don't make up there, resist the reflex to measure that because it does not reflect upon your standing before God. And in fact, because one of the things, especially in our modern day, we have a culture of praying three times a day before our meals, okay? And I think that's a wonderful practice, very wise. Uh, But at the same time, I know within my own heart that my ability to have a quality prayer time when I am hangry can be severely compromised. Some of you go, yeah, prayer and fasting, that, I am learning that. My heart wants to be there, but goodness gracious, double cheeseburgers. Anyways, um... But even praying before dinner time, I have kids in my house, and so oftentimes the dinner table can be absolutely nuts. It can be chaotic. They're just going on about their day and stuff like that. And for me to have a quiet, focused prayer time where I'm trying to align the posture of my heart to be more like Jesus can possibly be severely compromised by one of my children who refuses to sit in his own chair because he wants to be in my lap all the time, Okay. So resist the reflex to measure. God is not looking at how often or how fervently or all that kind of thing. He's not, he's, once again, he's looking at the posture of your heart. So if you pray this prayer one time a day and your heart is aligned to him to be more like him so that he can grow you to look more like him, then that is far worth more than a thousand prayers a day when you're just checking off the boxes, Okay. And the second one is resist the need to define, okay? So once again, biblical poetry, maximum amount of meaning with the minimum amount of words. So that means that if you get to a point when you think, I think it means this, lock, stamp, and file that away, then you're going to shortchange your study of the scripture. So resist the need to define what it actually means because you can see it's already written with a purpose. It is like a treasure from heaven that you can keep digging in and you're still gonna find more and more out about God, okay? So these are this, and this is more or less an approach to poetry in general. And, and oftentimes we get the, well, God, I mean, not God, <laughs> I'm not God. Jordan, okay, what if I get it wrong? Yeah, it's likely you'll get it wrong and that's okay. Once again, let's, 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 let's get a big picture. If God... If his plan for salvation can be derailed by a bad interpretation of poetry, then he probably would not have put in poetry in the Bible. And then you're tracking with that? You're like, oh, yeah, no, yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense. So here's the deal. But another thing, too, what if I get it wrong? That's okay. If the posture of your heart is to learn more and grow to be more like Jesus, then that is going to limit your options of interpretation, and that is going to give you a great amount of protection. If you're concerned about the gospel of yourself, 
then yeah, I would be wary of that, okay? But not just that, but even more than that, if you're rooted in a community of people that is built upon love, understanding, validation, and hearing, and wanting to, be know, to know you, and growing in a character of love, if you are rooted in a community like that, then that is going to greatly determine how you interpret Scripture as well. And there's things to take into account. The people you're surrounded with carry great weight in how you interpret Scripture. So, I am not afraid of bad interpretations. I do it all the time, okay, which is why God points these things out and why I have men who are wiser than me to say, no. I'm like, okay, all right, no, no, that's good. So once again, having that community is going to give you great insulation between walking around with a bad interpretation. But just know it's going to happen. But once again, resist that reflex to measure because, oh, I got a bad interpretation. God is not terrified of that. He is far more concerned with the direction of your heart, the direction of your character, and who you are going to become at the end of this age. And so finally, I want to move into the closing parts of this. Uh, And so I want to bring attention to the idea that the Lord's Prayer is a prayer of formation. I had said last week that God, Jesus had given us the prayer as a way of calling us to action. And so the idea of praying the Lord's Prayer and then sitting and do nothing was absolutely not what God intended. When you pray this prayer, it's supposed to call up in you a sense of action. Okay, and so I want to talk about that. So in my thinkings and preparing for this sermon, I have created for you guys a funnel. Yes, a funnel of formation. That's, a, that's right for you, Charity. She's, she's always like, Charity, Jordan, you're so good at naming things. I'm like, I know. I'm really good at naming things. <laughs> the funnel of formation. <laughs> Anyways, so, so, this is, so in my thinking, one of my, part of my thinking was going, if God gave us the Lord's Prayer and it has this structure, then perhaps there's a meaning to it. And perhaps there's a formula, if you way, and I don't, I hesitate to use the formula except as a way of making it known quickly to us, but perhaps if we pray the Lord's Prayer as the body of Christ, then maybe something will happen. And so I've kind of written this out and drew it up in a picture because I like pictures far more than words, and I want to show it to you guys now. But just know this is a product of my imagination, okay? And I've had people look at it before, and I've had Slade look over it. He's like, yeah, okay, you're not doing any heresies. I'm like, all right, okay, good. So I can use it? Yeah, that's good. Okay, awesome. So here we go. I present to you now Jordan's funnel of formation applied to the Lord's Prayer. And it looks like this. So here's the deal. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What that speaks out to me is this communal Unity. And yes, I do realize communal unity is a little bit redundant, okay? But when we are talking about church unity, I'm okay with being redundant, okay? So this, our Father, this expands out to the entire body of Christ across the world at all times, in all places, no matter where it finds itself. This is a prayer being spoken by Fellowship Bible Church. This is a prayer being spoken by Moberly, by New Beginnings, by Longview Christian Church, by High Ridge, by Pathways, by all the churches within Longview and all the denominations and traditions, the Baptist churches, the Presbyterian churches, the Episcopals, the Methodists, the Lutherans, they all pray this prayer that we pray. Even the greater denominations like that, like the Baptist movement, the Anabaptists, uh, and all of them. Once again, our Father, the Protestant, the Orthodox, and the Catholic churches all agree, our Father in heaven. May we be protected from the arrogance of thinking that we are the only ones doing it right. 
When we pray this prayer, may our attention shoot out to the ends of the earth to all Christians who call upon Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and say, I'm right there with you, man. I'm right there with you. And if we can establish that, then perhaps we can move to the next level, the missional hope. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the marching orders given to the church. This is what we are given to accomplish. This is what God wants us to see us do in the lives of ourselves and everyone else. This is the unifying mission of the church to bring the kingdom on here and may it be as it is in heaven. And then if we can perhaps agree upon that, maybe we can move to the next level. When we look at give us this day our daily bread and what is brought to our attention is the fulfilled promises of God. All the way from the Garden of Eden when sin first entered and he made promises that I'm not gonna leave it this way. It's going to be fixed. I'm going to redeem. I'm going to reconcile. And everything else from every experience you have ever had where you have felt like God has a hand in blessing you or protecting you or redeeming you from that if we can understand that he is trustworthy, then our trust can be placed upon him. And then we can take the most vulnerable parts of ourselves, the most fragile parts of ourselves, and we can place it to him for his safekeeping. And if we can do that, that brings us to the next level of re repentance and reconciliation. If we are able to trust God with the most fragile parts of ourselves, then that opens up extra space in our lives to make room for others where we can then attend to the needs of others and the church can be what the church is supposed to be, where we are joyfully submitting to one another in a community of love, in a community of peace, in a community of reconciliation. And then finally, when we have this awareness of the sin in our lives and the need for repentance, reconciliation, that brings us back to where our guide is, to follow the way of Jesus that we can be encouraging one another to continue to follow the way that Jesus. We are still in the wilderness. We're not out of the wilderness yet, and so we must always bring attention to our guide in Jesus. Now, the interesting thing about this funnel is it also works in the opposite direction as well. As I said earlier, when the, time, when the waters are quiet, then it's easy to keep things under control, to have a healthy prayer life and stuff. But when the waters are troubled, I would argue that is the, all the more important the Lord's prayer needs to be frequently coming out of our lips. Because in a time of crisis, usually the first casualty is church unity. Immediately. When the time of crisis, when the time of testing comes up, then all of a sudden we're just looking around saying, whoa, 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 whoa. are we all together on this or not? And then that shifting will then lead to a crumbling of the missional hope. When we have the gospel, your kingdom, your will be done on earth as in heaven, then gets fractured off in these specific interpretations of the gospel and say, no, this is the right one. No, the gospel is all about saving souls. No, the gospel is all about discipleship. No, the gospel is all about social justice. No, the gospel is all about political action. These are all good and appropriate things in their time and place, but they must never be distracted from the ultimate goal that they encompass everything that Jesus has taught us and demonstrated to us how he wants us to behave in this world. And if we lose traction on the hope and the mission that what we are here, what we have been given to do, that leads in the fulfilled promises of God. Well, if we have no idea what he wants us to do, then how can we trust him? And then later, and sure enough, the fulfilled promises of God get replaced with the fulfilled promises of yourself. I cannot rely on God, so therefore, I only have myself that I can rely on. And this continues down the cycle. 
If you are concerned with yourself and your self-protection, then you have no bandwidth or capacity for others. And it goes from blessing others and being reconciled to others to the language then shifts to what do others owe me? And then finally, when you're in this stage, you're no longer gonna follow the way because you're gonna follow your own way as you are attempting to guide yourself through the wilderness. Something that I would, <laughs> I mean, in theory, that's gonna lead to your own destruction, but I haven't gotten that far yet, okay, because by the grace of God, so I can't say with certainty. But we need to pay attention to this, folks. The Lord's Prayer directs us informs us into the people of God. And yes, we have all sorts of New Testament and Old Testament things that kind of do this, but when you, when you talk about how packed and concise it is, and there's, a, there's, there's something to it. And just real quick, guys, I am so excited for Sam Shaw to come in. I think it's going to be a wonderful thing. But if he walks in this building and we have the mindset of now he is going to fix it, we have already set him up to fail. Because it is not the responsibility of the Sham Saul to save this church. It's not even the responsibility of the elders, deacons, or staff. Okay, we do good to guide the church, but it is not our responsibility to save the church. You are the church. So may we begin to adjust our mindset to what can we do to foster in the next chapter of Fellowship Bible Church? How can we help the body of Christ flourish? And perhaps the Lord's prayer can give us a way to do that. So in closing, I know, sorry guys, we're going long, okay, but in closing, but I do want to ask the question, does the Lord's Prayer ever get answered? Are we supposed to pray it until we die, or do we pray it till it gets answered? It's an interesting question, but I would argue today the Lord's Prayer has been answered, especially when you look at the Great Commission, when Jesus Christ is now risen and about to sin into heaven, and when he looks and he gives his disciples this great commission, look at the language he uses whenever he does it. And Jesus came and said to them, the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You guys see that language there? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our Father, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus ends his ministry to his disciples by saying, I've got that. It is in the bag. Everything else is now under me. The Lord's prayer Praise God has been answered. But just not that. But that <laughs> but wait, there's more. Okay? Not only the Lord's prayer has been answered through the finished work of Jesus Christ, but it is also still being answered today through the continued work of the church. When we talk about this idea of we are still in the wilderness and we are being delivered to the promised land, that also echoes this popular idea within church life that we are in the already but not Yet, God has already subdued evil. God has already put all powers and principalities under his feet. He has disarmed them thoroughly, but there's still work for the church to do. And so, yes, the Lord's Prayer has been answered, but also today, here and now, it is still continuing to be answered by how we conduct ourselves on this earth until he comes to bring us home. So where do we go from here? So in closing, one of the things I want to point out, uh, well, actually, honestly, I don't. As I've been trying to think about how to end this series, how to end this sermon, really the thing that keeps coming back to my mind are the words that Jesus used when he was bringing the Sermon, to the Mount, sermon on the Mount to a close. 
which is where the Lord's Prayer is being taught in the book of Matthew. So if you go to Matthew chapter 7, this is how I want to end our service here today. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, insert Lord's Prayer, and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and, it, and, the, and great was the fall of it. We must make no mistake that when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, when he gave his disciples the Lord's Prayer, he fully intended that they would listen and do as he has instructed, as what any good disciple would do to their rabbi, to their teacher, to the mentor, to their guide through the wilderness. And so I would plead with you today, church, make the Lord's Prayer frequent on your lips. Whether it's by yourself, or you get together with a small group, or you get on a group text, or Marco Polo, or you get a Zoom meeting, whatever, spend time praying the Lord's Prayer together, and then talking about how it intersects with the experiences that you're going through today. And a simple way of putting it, one of my longtime, my most favorite theologians and philosophers ever has a wonderfully simple way of summing up this idea of putting the words of Jesus into practice. A uh, Christian theologian, Dallas Willard, is, is famous for saying, put the teachings of Jesus into practice and you will find them to be true. Church, put the Lord's prayer into practice and you will find it to be true. I guarantee it. So as we close out our time, we're going to be ending with the time that we normally spend with the time of praying together as the body of Christ. And so whether you are more comfortable doing that by yourself or gathering around a group of people, that is okay. Um, but what I want to be talking to you and what I want to put upon your heart today is pray about how God is leading you in your next steps to discipleship. So today we're going to be praying about this. Pray about what your next steps in discipleship could be as you follow the way of Jesus. As we had talked about today during announcement times, in all aspects of our children's ministry, from youth to Awana to kids' ministry, we are in need of laborers. The harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few, and we need your help. Help play a part. Participate in the next generation of the church, both as we help move through this time that we are going through right now, but also as you help students develop to learn what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus. You will receive, you will receive encouragement, affirmations, and teachings, and training as well to better fulfill this. But once again, as Slade pointed out, you are already qualified because you guys are older than they are, okay? <laughs> that means you have wisdom and experience to bless them with. The mistakes you made at a young, as a young child, you have the ability to then use that as a teachable moment to help someone else. You can have a chance for God to redeem the dark stories of your life to help someone else walk in greater wisdom today. That is a gift that you can offer the young ones that are coming up. And so whenever, what we're going to do is we're going to pray together, and after a few minutes, I'm going to close us to prayer for prayer and officially dismiss us. Uh, so today, pray about what your next steps in discipleship could be as you follow the way of Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.